I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. I'm here with our guest, Dr. Jason Karlowish, for installment number two of our discussion on the problem of Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Karlowish is a fellow geriatrician and scientist at the UPenn AD Core Center, as well as an avid writer and advocate for change for an aging population. In our last episode, we discussed the changing meaning of Alzheimer's disease and forms of cognitive impairment, as well as some of the pivotal moments in its history. On today's episode, we'll continue that conversation with a new twist, how culture, society, and politics played a role in how we got to where we are today, and the barriers that may have been put up or torn down in the process. Thanks for joining us again, Jason. It's a pleasure to be back, Nate. Let's jump into part two of your book called The Birth of Alzheimer's Disease. I suppose we can't really discuss history of Alzheimer's without touching on someone that you call the unwitting revolutionary. Yes, Elias Alzheimer's. And I, yeah, I really liked writing part two. It was the most fun to research. It was the most research intensive in writing. Yeah. Um, Elias Alzheimer's was uh, uh, preternaturally tall, even for his, even now he'd be the tallest guy in the room. He was over six feet. Um, He liked his beer. Um, you know, he came from a middle-class Catholic family. Um, he, uh, sounds like he was a bit of a, a wild child, a wild young man. He, as I say, he liked his beer, um, Christian, but not, you know, fairly low key about it. In fact, his wife was, uh, was Jewish. Um, uh, so his sister and after she, anyway, I could go on anyway, he was an unwitting revolutionary because there was nothing about him that was disruptive. He was a good upper middle-class German. Um, who married into wealth. Um, but the discoveries he made, and when you read his writings, uh, uh, particularly his later writings, not the, the case report we all go to, the 1906-07 report, but when you read his later writings, he uh, was seriously questioning the distinction between senile dementia and pre-senile dementia. In particular, he was questioning the idea that senile dementia was sort of end-stage aging, a host of just degenerative uh, aging processes that medicine had much little to say about, whereas pre-senile dementia was a disease, you know, caused by some pathology. And you can see in his writings clearly that he said that there's something going on here, Um, but then he died. (laughs) And other events happened as well because he wasn't alone in this work. In fact, I would argue he wasn't leading in this work. I don't want to sound rude, but I think he was more following, you know, and who was he following? Well, the, I think one of the lead actors here in, the, in this was a was a uh, also a psychiatrist uh, and also a neuropathologist named Oscar Fisher. And, and it's interesting. This this was a cadre of psychiatrists that were uh, uh, very unique from other psychiatrists. They were not alienists. That is to say, they they worked in asylums, which is the origin idea of an alienist that they work in asylums that care for people who are outside of society. But these psychiatrists in Germany were very much enamored of biological models of mental illness um, and were keen to develop biological models. So they also were very skilled neuropathologists because they did clinical path correlations. Anyway, that's what Oscar Fischer was as well. And Fischer really pursued the study of um, brains of people with dementia. Um, And he, he published several papers with meticulous microscopic analyses 
of what we would now call amyloid plaques, but which at the time, given the quality of his work, uh, were actually called Fisher's plaques and named after Fisher. And I think they should be renamed after Fisher to honor him because his story is very sad and his story becomes an entry into what happened and what's so wrong. If Alois Alzheimer's and his colleagues had been allowed to do what they were doing, I think that it is possible by the middle of the 20th century, we would have seen the, um, bi that the biological uh, underpinnings of what, we would, what then was called senility, okay? But that didn't happen. And why didn't it happen? It was because they were all in Germany and German nationals. And everything was going fairly swimmingly up until about 1914 when World War I hits. And then things really start to fall apart. And in the four years of the war and in the aftermath of that war and the economic uh, chaos, um, it would make doing research extremely difficult because it's very expensive. But it gets even worse. Fischer actually lived in Austria. He lived in Prague. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, uh, and he, lived, he lived in Prague in um, uh, in Czechoslovakia, I'm sorry. And he was Jewish and he was a leftist. And in 1920s, uh, being a leftist Jew was uh, perilous and he would be uh, driven out of his university appointment. And um, he uh, would therefore be unable to pursue his research. And uh, he ultimately would be imprisoned when the Nazis uh, took over uh, Czechoslovakia and um, uh, he would be and was killed in Eisenstadt prison by the Gestapo. And so it was a career cut short and ruined. And his story is one of, sadly, too many. Essentially, there would have been great progress in the field of Alzheimer's disease, but for World War I, German nationalism, economic collapse, anti-Semitism, and then World War II sort of tops it all off. And it just shut the whole thing down. And that's a story that I wanted to tell. And I think it's a very important story. And there it is. No, thank you for that, because it's an ugly side of it, but I think I, I do feel like it's an important thing to know. And it does answer some of the questions of why is it taken so long for us to get to where we are? It seemed like the German scientists and physicians were making great progress in Alzheimer's disease. What happened? The other wrap on this, which I point out is, so the champion of the concept of biological psychiatry was a, was a German psychiatrist named Emil Kreplin. And in his day, he was... Emil Kreplin was to psychiatry as William Osler was to internal medicine. Um, and yet we all remember William Osler more or less, maybe. Uh, but Kreplin was utterly forgotten. And why is that? Well, Kreplin would embrace vicious eugenic concepts. After the First World War, he became a anti-Semite. Um, and I'm not saying that was the reason why his work was ignored um, and forgotten. Um, but it certainly was a reason because it got wrapped up in the bundle of, 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 of dark uh, nationalism that was wrecked by German, uh, by the Nazis. Um, and so that just adds to the story of it wasn't about science not making progress. It wasn't. It was about society intruding into science and the scientists themselves, in the case of Kreplin, being seduced by these dark uh, uh, forces. Now, if we fast forward a bit and change the scenery to that of the United States, you describe many key cultural and political events that influence Alzheimer's disease from the 1970s to the early 2000s. And I'd like to start with what with a call to action in the form of an essay that was written in 1976 that you describe. Uh, what was this and why did it matter? Yeah. So you're not going to let me talk about the fact that from about 1950 to 1976, Freudism basically ruled, ruled psychiatry. <laughs> 
Well, you just did now, so you got it in. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's what also kept it hidden in America, which was Freudian theories of disease really crowded out biological theories. And I'm not saying Freudian theories are wrong and biological are right, but it really kind of crowded out biological psychiatry. Anyway, yeah, you're right. Um, a, a key event then happens um, in 1976, and it uh, was um, a short 1,200-word essay by a smart, uh, hardworking, not terribly prominent for his research, in fact, you know, uh, a neurologist named Robert Katzman. And um, he wrote this essay called The Prevalence and Malignancy of Alzheimer's Disease. And citing a few studies, it's only a few references and whatnot, he argues that the thing we call senility um, is the same as this thing we called Alzheimer's, namely that this rare pre-senile dementia caused by Alzheimer's disease is the same thing as this very common dementia caused by senility, that is to say extreme aging. And he principally cites the results of microscopy studies of what we would call the Fisher, we don't, we was once upon the Fisher's plaques, but at that point was, was thought to be, um, and came to be discovered to be amyloid plaques. And that's essentially his argument. And what he says is, if it's actually a prevalent and malignant killer, um, we have to take this problem on and bring the full force of biomedicine to bear, um, you know, in order to research it, um, diagnose it, and develop treatments for it. And I, I detail the Katzman story. I was able to interview both of his sons. Um, and um, he was a fascinating man and I, uh, 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 a, a very um, thoughtful person who actually probably also could have been a great social scientist because he really thought broadly and deeply and across disciplines. Um, and he also was a bit of an activist. Um, he was recruited to uh, take a job in Arkansas, um, but he uh, wasn't convinced that by the time he would get there that the state would be desegregated. And he didn't have any interest in practicing medicine in a segregated um, uh, state. He's, and he himself had witnessed the devastation of Alzheimer's in a beloved mother-in-law um, and understood how much it destroyed a family or, or harmed a family, I should say. Um, so he had personal as well as political motivations. I mean, I think he saw this disease as robbing people's autonomy and liberty. Um, and it's a fascinating man. Uh, anyway, the essay was the sort of shot heard around the world, and it would launch and organize um, uh, a variety of efforts, and he would be part of all those efforts, like you know, uh, namely the founding of what would then become called the Alzheimer's Association, NIA's research focus, et cetera. Katzman was there. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk about Freudian psychiatry, too, with, with this question. So three, three other key things happened around the time leading up to the essay and the essay itself um, that I think build important context, and you've alluded to one of them, which is psychiatry was changing, but also the system of care for older people was reforming, and then the role of women was advancing. So what did those three things do in the realm of Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, it's a bit of a tangled knot, and to, or, and to unpack it is interesting. So number one, biological psychiatry um, began to replace uh, Freudian ideas of psychiatry. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything, quote, fundamentally wrong with psychodynamic theories of illness, but they don't explain all illness. And, and they dominated American psychiatry almost to the point of uh, uh, excess, if you will. By the 1970s, certainly by the 80s, um, that balance began to tip, you could argue, arguably in the wrong direction, even to the degree that we sort of reject any psychodynamic theories. Anyway, that gave space for understanding a disease of the brain as a biological disease. So suddenly dementia had a place. So that's one event. The other event is um, 
the American family was changing. You know, the notion that there are these large, closely together families with enough women who, of course, will do all the care because that's what women do just simply wasn't working anymore. Um, the size of the family was shrinking. Uh, it was spread out. But more importantly, really, you know, the story of Alzheimer's disease in, in, in the 20th century is in some sense the story of women. Because what began to happen over the 20th century was a recognition that women's ability to uh, exercise their autonomy was not being adequately respected. And um, I mean, you know, my mother remembers not being able to get a credit card in 1961 because her husband had to give her credit. She couldn't just walk in and get a credit card. And I mean, you could tell these there's endless stories. So what was happening by 1976 when Katzman published his essay was a recognition that, you know, there are societal structural uh, 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 segregation in place that keep people from living the lives they want to live. And we have to undo and disimpact uh, those uh, structural uh, barriers. Like once upon a time, jobs could only be listed, were listed by gender in the newspapers, jobs for men, jobs for women. And a woman couldn't apply for a men's job and, you know, vice versa, let alone be hired. Well, all that ended with Supreme Court cases. The point I make is America was becoming ready to see something that takes away your ability to self-determine your life should be thought of as a disease because it is so fundamentally antithetical to being a human as opposed to just being part of nature and that's just the way things are. So that's another cultural stream. And then tied into that then is the, the sort of assumed workforce of stay at home, ever present, there'll always be a, some you know daughter, daughter-in-law, second daughter who hasn't quite got it, whatever, to care for people. That's just not appropriate anymore. And so what you're left with, well, then who's going to take care of these folks? Well, the reality is, of course, it still is women um, and in this country, sadly, unsupported. But there was a brief period of time in the 80s where there was some consensus that we need to rejigger our healthcare system to provide long term care services and supports for the chronically disabled. Um, but then that's the last sort of actor in the story. And, I, and in, in the book, I have chapter last casualties of the cold war and crisis in the family, where I talk about the rapid, oh, and it was rapid. It was over about 10, 15 year period at most collapse of any consensus that we should have a long-term care social insurance program in America. And I chronicle how it probably the pivot point was around 1988. And certainly the window closed once the Gingrich Congress came into power. And even now, that's the world we live in. I mean, any proposal to vastly expand social services and supports is met by one party as socialism and just a, a no-go, you know, and, and that's where we're stuck right now. And we'll talk about that actually in, in episode four. We'll ask you for more questions on it. Yeah. Um, in your part two, though, you also spend some time telling the stories of some pretty influential people who were focused on Alzheimer's disease and caregiving. And in those sections, you describe an internal struggle over a name. And so that's reflective of more than just the name. It's really reflective of the field itself. So could you tell our our listeners, you know, what was that struggle? Yeah, the struggle was the organization, what to name the organization, which we now call the Alzheimer's Association. Um, and, and it reflected, and I detail almost, you know, month to month, that as the quote, seven families got together, um, what they were going to call themselves. So the seven families, as they're known, were seven separate groups that had sprung up throughout America in the 70s, uh, to take on the problem of dementia, the problem of Alzheimer's. And right there, you see the problem. <laughs> um, because most of these groups were organized by women 
who um, were trying to care for husbands who had dementia. And they were encountering a different healthcare system that just said, well, you know, I don't know, it's aging, you take care of them, it's your problem. And, and their stories are utterly moving. And I detail one in particular, Hilda Prigian, who's, who cared for her husband. I was able to interview her son, uh, Ryan, it was a very moving interview. Anyway, so everyone agrees we've got to do something. But then the question is, is what's our approach? And is our approach that we need to take care of the problem of dementia or is our approach that we need to take care of the problem of Alzheimer's? And if it's the problem of dementia, we're open to the fact that Alzheimer's is one cause, but there are many causes, etc. And we have to advocate for the care and treatment of those folks. But, but if the problem is Alzheimer's, well, it's the biggest cause. We think back then that was what the rhetoric was. And, and that gives us a focus on research to find the cure, et cetera. And, and politically, that side argued that um, Congress would be more amenable to a, an approach that emphasized this one disease as opposed to a disease of the month coming at Congress every time saying, you know, we're the disease about dementia, the head injury people. No, we are the, the uh, Alzheimer's people. No, we are the Parkinson's people. No, we are. And, and Congress would be getting mixed messages. Like, well, so, so this was the fight. And the compromise was to name the organization the Alzheimer's Disease and Related Disorders Association, which is what their actual still incorporated name is. If you go back at what they file as their taxes is the AD, ADRD. Um, because that was this, what I call the Bethesda Compromise. And I detailed the fights that broke out. And they were fights. They got angry. I mean, they were yelling at each other about this. And in some sense, you know, because they were in this argument about who will we care, who do we care about? Anyway, certainly, though, um, what would happen about four or five years later, um, the Alzheimer's Association would um, officially announce that our public facing name is the Alzheimer's Association. Um, and that way we are advocating for Alzheimer's disease the diagnosis, treatment, and ultimately cure of this disease. And, and, and that tension still, I think, exists in the field, though. You know, what's our focus? And you see it now played out in Napa, for example, the National Alzheimer's Plan. And so culture and society weren't the only influences on Alzheimer's disease. So politics played an important role, too, which you cover in your book. So what do you think were the key moments in our U.S. political history that positively or negatively affected the progress of Alzheimer's disease? In the U.S. political history, it's mostly negative up until the 21st century, this century, uh, uh, when, and I detail how the Alzheimer's Association kind of rejiggered their strategy completely and really did some marvelous work with Congress. And, um, but much of the latter, latter quarter of the 20, 20th century is a series of just fits and starts and disasters. And it begins with the election of Ronald Reagan. Reagan didn't set out to say, I want to hurt people with Alzheimer's and their family members. Um, he didn't. And, but the, policy, the rhetoric he, he advanced and the policies he pursued were not going to help improve the diagnosis and treatment of persons living with dementia. He walked into the office saying, the government is big, bloated, overregulated. America is overtaxed. He, particularly in his State of the Union addresses, would cite Medicare and Medicaid as full of waste and corruption and not in need of expansion, but in need of reduction and, and cutting. Um, and so the notion of, well, let's put a long-term care social insurance program in place was just that. It was just a non-starter. Having said that, by 1988, there was consensus that we need to do something about the problem of long-term care in America. The problem was that the one candidate, as I detail, 
who didn't support that view was George Herbert Walker Bush. And he, of course, would go on to win the election. And then things by the 90s get messy. Um, and the key events that I detail there, and I actually have a, whole, a, a very vivid encounter where Tom DeLay meets these Alzheimer's activists. And uh, he would, of course, at the time, he was just a congressman from Texas. He would, of course, become the majority whip uh, when the Gingrich Congress took over. And I detail from the Alzheimer's Association's board of director minutes, which I had access to, um, how they recognize that the political sentiments here are in no way going to support a vast expansion of social insurance programs that we need. So by the time the 20th century rolls around, the best that the field that can do is fits and starts of small advances in programs, which really were just sort of a patchwork of a mess. And then there's a whole story, which I narrate, of the frustrations of getting the necessary increases in research funding for the National Institutes of Aging. And that's a, that story, ultimately, in the 21st century with the National Alzheimer's Project, that's a brilliant story. I have a whole chapter called Hope and a Plan, where the Alzheimer's Association really rejiggered their approach and engaged in some of the most, I think, sort of thoughtful advocacy. Uh, it's, it's really an inspiring story. And you've said in the past that we didn't have to be in this crisis that we're currently in. Yeah. So where do, you, where do you think we went wrong and why has it taken us so long in the United States to grapple with this disease? Because I think Alzheimer's disease is wrapped up into in late 20th century fights over the role of the family expressed through, you know, fights about, you know, family values. Um, the role of the state and concerns about the welfare state in America um, wrapped up into concerns about creeping socialism. And, you know, the, that kind of hot rhetoric um, really thwarts the ability to organize for a disease so vast and enormous as this disease. I mean, on the day we're talking, the Alzheimer's Association's issued its facts and figures for 2021. And the facts are there's 6.2 million people with the disease and 11 million caregivers. Well, you know, uh, we have not been able to have the kind of conversation as a society that says what kind of infrastructure needs to be in place to take care of these kinds of patients and their caregivers. And it is about infrastructure, you know, like the way we think about roads and bridges. And I brought that up specifically because we can't even have a conversation in this country about how to repair bridges right at this point, you know, and how to spend uh, our national uh, uh, money on repairing roads and bridges, let alone creating a long-term care social support system. Although I do have hope that I think the COVID pandemic may have opened us up to some changes in that space because we sort of realize how important it is to have systems of care in place when they're taken away, as COVID showed us. <laughs> now, why is it more than just a medical problem? And as you describe it in your book, Alzheimer's disease is a humanitarian problem or crisis. Yeah. Well, you know, it starts with this recognition that um, it, it chips away early and relentlessly at someone's ability to self-determine their life. Um, and so it ramifies into things like the organization and structure and function of the family, um, someone's ability to exercise their self-determination and choose the life they want to live. Um, it, 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 it ramifies into your ability to exercise your instrumental activities of daily living to sound like a geriatrician, you know, uh, shopping, using technology, et cetera. And so it's so much wrapped up into our daily lives that it requires an approach that frankly is wrapped up in our daily lives. And I talk in the book about things like changes in our, uh, how we talk to patients and think about capacity, uh, the use of technology to detect and monitor cognitive problems. Well, once you see the disease in that, with that ethical framing, um, you really see it's a humanitarian problem. 
You've said in the past, we can't drug our way out of this disease. Why do you think that? And do you think Alzheimer's disease is not just one disease? You know, it, it requires sort of a full panoply of our resources, law, economics, social science, um, and yes, of course, biomedical science. I guess the one sticker there is, well, what if you could cure it? Then we wouldn't have this problem, right? And that's, so a key point that I make in the book is, you know, I think what you and I know whenever we go to our meetings, you know, once the door is closed, everyone says this is a heterogeneous disease and the notion that we're going to sort of cure it is, is like trying to cure cancer. I mean, there are many different routes with which brains suffer neurodegeneration, um, like plaques, tau tangles, which is two of them. Um, and so, yeah, we should count on better treatments, but the notion that we're going to drug our way out of this disease is like, you know, buying lottery tickets to plan for your retirement. You know, you may win big, but the odds are you're not going to win. So I'm going to remind our listeners that the FDA is currently deciding on whether to approve a new potential therapy for people with Alzheimer's disease called aducanumab. Now, this would be the first approval of a new drug since 2003. However, this is not the first time we're searching for hope in a pill, as Dr. Carlos describes in his book about a different class of drugs. So Jason, what happened with the first set of drugs that we call cholinesterase inhibitors? And can we find hope in a pill today? I'll answer your second question. Yes, we can find hope in a pill, but it needs to be measured hope. Having said that, you know, the cholinesterase inhibitors, which we all now know as, you know, Dinepazil marketed by Pfizer as Aricept, Galantamine, Rivastigmine, et cetera. The cholinesterase inhibitors I detail in a chapter called uh, Hope in a Pill, um, the sort of headline making uh, research report that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, around Thanksgiving or just before Thanksgiving in the late 1980s. Um, of a therapy that seemed to restore people back to the way they were. And the bottom line, what I detail, and then I sort of fast forward to the early 20th, first century, when a prominent French researcher is interviewed about the cholinesterase inhibitors and admits on a hot mic, il ne sait rien, they're useless, uh, it translated into the English. And I, I found the link to the interview on, on what's the equivalent of an NPR station in, 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 in France, a, a show called France Entrédie. And um, his sentiment was an honest sentiment. I, I, you could debate whether they're useless, but certainly the hype and the um, promise of the cholinesterase inhibitors, I think now most admit, were way overplayed and, and way misunderstood. And yet they were overplayed and they were misunderstood. And so the question is why, you know? And essentially the argument I make in, the, uh, in that chapter is um, a couple streams of events were occurring, but I'll highlight two. Number one, it gave the disease a biomedical model upon which research could be conducted and studies done where there were prior no clinical studies being done. And number two, it created a research infrastructure. And so you mentioned aducanumab, the research infrastructure in place that allows uh, Biogen to do the studies it did to develop aducanumab, you can trace that right back to the cholinesterase inhibitors. Because what the cholinesterase inhibitors did was lead to an infusion of federal money at the, into the Alzheimer's centers to develop the research infrastructure to do the clinical trials. And so, you know, it, it's an interesting story of how sometimes drugs have other, un, other secondary uh, gains Namely, you know, they build a research infrastructure, which is certainly what the cholinesterase inhibitors did. Well, I appreciate your perspective on this, Jason, and, and thank you for providing the context needed as we delve into our healthcare system and what society can do, what we can do to help the problem of Alzheimer's disease. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Nate, for having me. 
please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.